now. Good evening. The magic, the wonder, the spirit of film that can enchant, captivate, or elicit imagination. Welcome to the first annual Limboskers, a tradition that stretches back to Monday when we traded a series of texts for this very segment. I am Clay Russell. I'm Christine Sear. And I'm Brian Tuck. This is a podcast about the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Those who have won a Limboskers, those who should have a Limboskers, and maybe a few who shouldn't have a Limboskers. Father, son, and house of Gucci. Thank you, and best of luck to all nominees tonight. Really wowed you with that, didn't I, guys? <laughs> I wasn't ready. I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> I know. I didn't know we were going to go so big uh, while also going home. Guys? <laughs> yeah. This is our film episode. This is where we shine. We, we've danced around it every episode, but this is where we lean into it. This mm-hmm. is this mm-hmm. is an opening segment all about film. Yeah, it is. Which is funny because I'm sort of like the least film nerdy of the group, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it count. Uh, you're not going to be able to see this at home, listeners, but yes, I have created a slideshow for... Clay Russell made here. a slideshow for a non-visual media that's just for us because he's so generous (laughs) because i care that's right first up for the 2022 limboskers is uh the award for best supporting beverage uh which i'm giving to tammy faye's diet cokes i feel like Mm. it was always there for her in all her different looks um, Brian, as he's taking a sip from, what cocktail are you drinking right now? What is your best supporting beverage, Brian? I'm having a Mianetto Aperol Spritz. Okay, uh, next up, the best title of a film that I'm never going to see. Uh, it's called Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. I uh, don't want to tell the Resident Evil people what to do, but uh, if you're going to call a movie Welcome to Raccoon City, I don't see any raccoons on this poster here. And what's great is the quality of the image of the poster that you've provided is so poor that it looks like (laughs) Zachary Quinto, Kate Middleton, and Channing Tatum are all in this movie. And I'm almost positive that that's not possible, but I don't know. And I hope to never find out. (laughs) <laughs> I like how they couldn't get uh, Sam. Uh, what is his name from Avatar? Who's the actor? Sam Worthington. They couldn't get Sam Worthington. They had to get a Sam Worthington lookalike because apparently Sam Worthington is too busy for Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. Well, he's probably making the next Avatar movie, which that threat is still out there. It could come at any time. <laughs> it's true. Just haunting America. Um. Clay, have you considered that the raccoons built the city for humans, and that's why there are any, aren't any raccoons there anymore, because their work is finished? I think so, but I think if you're going to have a movie called Welcome to Raccoon City, there should be adorable raccoons at least in the poster. Am I wrong about you're this? You're not wrong. Maybe with their little, like, construction belts around their waists? Yeah. Before we move on, I do just want to point out again that the idea that James Cameron can release a movie whenever he wants, that threat is on par with us living on a fault line. Mm-hmm. It's true. 
Do we live on a phone? Next up is our paycheck performance of the year. The uh, appearance in a movie that the actor clearly doesn't care about. He's just in it uh, just to collect a paycheck and get the hell out of it. Mm. Uh, first up is Ryan Reynolds in the movie Free Guy. Uh, I'll go ahead and list the nominees, and then we can talk about it later. So uh, Ryan Reynolds in Free Guy. Uh, next up, Ryan Reynolds in Red Notice. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, in that performance. Uh, next up, uh, Ryan Reynolds in The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. <laughs> wow. This is like that year Holly Hunter was nominated, like in mm-hmm. two, or Sigourney Weaver and Working Girl and Gorillas of the Mist. It, it, when you see this level of artistry, it's just, it's inspiring. Incredible it's we, 2021. It, it, it's why we came up with this 96 hours ago to, see, <laughs> to honor right. this work. It's so true. <laughs> and why I spent an entire day making this slideshow. <laughs> uh, last nominee, he's been in the news lately, uh, and I don't want to kick someone whenever they're clearly having public troubles. But uh, Kong in Godzilla versus Kong, I, mm. I felt like he completely mailed in that performance as well. Uh, so of these four, who, who do we think should win Paycheck Performance of the Year? It's so tough. Um, but for me, it's got to be Ryan Reynolds in, in, in Red Notice. Okay. A, a movie that apparently exists, but I have not seen any proof, and I don't know anyone who can. Prove. Hold on, you're telling me that you've seen the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard? Because I feel like you can tell the level of checked outness, like based on each photo. He looks hungover in that picture, and then in the Red Notice picture, he's like just completely slack jawed, like he can't even mm-hmm. bother to make a facial expression. At least in the Free Guy, still he has sort of like a like aren't I a naughty boy like little look on it like he made a facial expression like can you believe i can be this snarky and not have to wear the deadpool outfit Mm, yes Mm -hmm. and bothered to show up to set sober correct i i do have to say i want to give you credit i think it's very very um modern of you to not gender the categories but Mm -hmm. i do have to say i am disappointed to not see any female performers uh recognized here such as maybe um a gal gadot in um, murder on the Nile, you know? Are you sure that enough champagne <laughs> to fill the Nile? That's not a mailed-in performance, Brian, okay? I... She showed up. She showed up poorly, but she did show up. Did you see that Guardian article that she wrote that said, I don't want to be in a situation, not even for an hour, where there isn't enough champagne <laughs> to fill the Nile? <laughs> <laughs> She doesn't get out of bed for less champagne than to fill the <laughs> then what could, If it's like a bathtub full of champagne, no. pass. I'm staying yeah. in bed. Yeah. Next up, uh, comeback award of the year goes to Knife Fights. Uh, <laughs> just when we thought that there'd be, you know, just all shoot 'em up movies now. Knife Fights really made a comeback this year uh, in Dune, Station Eleven, and West Side Story. So congratulations to Knife Fights. And a special shout out to Riff uh, from West Side Story, who ironically showed up <laughs> to a knife fight with a gun. But still yeah. died. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Still found a way to, to lose a knife fight with a gun. That's right. You know, he, he thought he had outsmarted them, but. Mm-hmm. Next up, the uh, movie title that I was disappointed with the most. I thought that finally, after all these years, that the Jokers in Hollywood would wake up and create uh, the Mystic Pizza Metaverse. Uh, with licorice pizza, uh, waiting to to see a sequel to Mystic Pizza, but uh, I sat through the entire licorice pizza. No, Julia Roberts. 
I love this category the most because I love Mystic Pizza. And I was just uh-huh. telling Christine the other day that I've been to the titular restaurant. Bad. And the pizza is bad. <laughs> but I did buy the t-shirt that Julia Roberts wears in the movie that says, it's a slice of heaven. And every time I wear it, like some like 55-year-old woman comes over to me and is like, Mystic Pizza, that's the best movie. And I'm like, this is my audience. Yes. <laughs> Middle-aged women. Next up, uh, Musician of the Year. I think everyone is leaning toward Hans Zimmer and his incredible score for Dune, but uh, we know our audience here at the Limbaugh. It's Gary, the Christian <laughs> rock producer from the eyes of Tammy Faye. Just anyone who like, can lay down a track like Jesus keeps on taking me higher and higher, he gets the award. And then get um, a pregnant Tammy Faye to rub her butt all over his junk, um, mm-hmm. which then sends her into labor. I feel like we can't we can't let this award pass without mentioning that like the professionalism that it takes to mix a masterpiece while you're getting dry humped by a pregnant lady with eight pounds of mascara on it's <laughs> there's no one else better in the game. That's skill. Yeah. yeah. You deserve a limb Oscar for that. You're right. It wasn't just Jesus that took us higher. It was Gary. Yeah. Next up, best acting with a box uh, has to go to. Timothy Chalamet. I know that Charlotte Rampling is in the scene, but incredible acting. The chemistry he had with the box was amazing. Um, I have to say this. I think it has to be the most impressive acting with a box since the final scene in Seven with Brad Pitt. I swear I was going to make that joke. Because whenever anyone asks me what's in the box, I'm like, it's Gwyneth Paltrow's head. Obviously. What else could it be? But in this case, it was pain. So congratulations to Timothy Chalamet and uh, Random Box of Pain as well. Yes. I'd like to wrap it up at least with my award presentation with the the final and most important word of the night, which is uh, the 2021 nominees for Best Jessica Chastain. The nominees for this year are Ana de Armas and No Time to Die. Uh, really incredible Jessica Chastain performance in that. She's giving uh, Jessica Chastain a Celia Foote in the Help performance. It's childlike. It evokes wonder. She's having the most fun in that movie, which mm-hmm. there's not a lot of fun in that movie. Um, there's plenty of time to die, though. I'll tell you that much. Three hours. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Next up is uh, Mackenzie Davis, who we mentioned on last week's show. Big fan of hers. I know that Station Eleven is not a movie, but at the Limb Oscars, you can make your own rules. I'd say she's definitely like an up-and-coming Jessica Chastain. Not quite there yet, but someone to keep your eye on. Agree. Yeah. And I would say this is a Jessica Chastain and Take Shelter performance. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Next up for best Jessica Chastain is Jessica Chastain uh, in the eyes of Tammy Faye. You just can't deny it. It's, it's classic Jessica Chastain there. The still that Clay used for this <laughs> image is... I think the performance of Jesus keeps taking me higher and the yes, it is. understanding how many prosthetics she has on her face, then caked with makeup, the intensity that is still blistering through all of that stuff. I'm scared of her, but like, I want mm-hmm. to be her, you know? Yeah. And that's peak Chastain. I, uh, I care for all the films that have been nominated for the Oscars, but I will be genuinely upset if she does not win Best Actress. And I would note that this is a Jessica Chastain in The Tree of Life because this is a very surreal film. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. you can't tell what's real and what's free, what's fake. It's just like Malick. It's yeah. in, 
So many layers. So many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and our final nominee, uh, another breakout performance this year uh, for Best Jessica Chastain is uh, Shai Halud, the giant sandworm from the film Dune. Oh, my God. Uh, just incredible entrance. Yes. Did not give a shit about anyone else in the scene. Just showed up and took over. You could say even chewed the scenery. I don't think that would be really out of out of line. Yeah, and this is would be a Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty performance. Um, yes, the energy is evoking that you don't know anything about. Uh, what country is it? Um, um, in Pakistan? Is that what you're referring <laughs> I, to? Yeah, you don't know anything about Pakistan when she's screaming at poor Kyle Chandler. Kyle Chandler's best acting being yelled at by a woman. Mm. Friday mm-hmm. Night Lights, Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. Yeah. His first marriage, <laughs> I assume, allegedly. <laughs> of of the four nominees, this is our most important award for today's show. Who gets the award for best Jessica Chastain? I mean, it's hard for me not to give it to Anna de Armas. You know, I just Yeah, mm-hmm. let's give it to her. her. She was supposed to have such a big year and then like so many things conspired against her. Um, she's a little bit of an underdog. She tries extremely hard. And isn't that the biggest Chastain of all? That's, you know, the real Jessica Chastain and other friends we make along the way. Mm. And one of those friends mm-hmm. is Honor to Armas. Yes. Are we kind of looking over the achievements of Jessica Chastain, though? Well, no, because uh, I have two awards to give out, and one of them is Jessica Chastain related. Okay, good. <laughs> good. She's, she's going to be recognized. Um, so for my limb Oscar, I wanted to pick two categories that I feel we're not talking about enough. We're recording this on Friday, March the 25th, 2022, the year of our Lord. Um, so we don't know how the Oscars play out, but you, dear listener, you know. Mm. So the nominees for which camp icon Jessica Chastain will win her second, and I want to put a little asterisk there because I'm assuming she has won the first one in your timeline, second Oscar for playing are... Amy Klobuchar, Wendy the Snapple Lady, (laughs) Bette Midler in a Being the Ricardo-style film about the making of the First Wives Club, Uh, Carol Channing, mm. and Liberace's Piano. (laughs) (laughs) Who would her uh, supporting co-star be in Liberace's Piano? Oh, in my, she's playing Liberace and the piano. Oh, both. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so it would be like a CGI army hammer and social network situation. Yes, but with less cannibalism. And okay. I, I would want, uh, obviously, if we're going to make a movie about this, the film has to be directed by Jane Campion because she loves making movies about pianos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Jessica doesn't get to work in a, with a female director, so it's just it's hand in hand, hand in glove. Yeah. Um, guys, I will say... My pick for this would be Bette Midler in a Being the Ricardo-style film about the making of the First Wives Club, because I I recently learned a little piece of trivia that the film had to shut down for three days because Goldie Hawn and Diane Keaton walked off set because Bette Midler would show up hours late and not apologize. And I think that the four days around Lucy being like accused of being a communist are nowhere near as tense as the conversations that needed to be had with two Oscar winners about getting back to set on Monday so that you could resume filming after getting into a fight with Bette Midler. I'm sorry. That's that's worse than communism. I could just see <laughs> the scene now, just uh, at the studio, everyone looking angry, and then suddenly the door swings open, there's a burst of sunlight, and in walks Jessica Chastain as Bette Midler holding like a tiny dog and sipping a big gulp. 
<laughs> I want to hang out with Bed Miller. I mean, I don't, I think she's a small doses person. Like if she were in my life, we would hang out like twice a year. Um, and she'd probably reschedule several times, but like it would always be worth it. I can't imagine mm-hmm. being in a regimented scenario where she, yeah, she had to be somewhere every single day. Um, mm. But, you know, we love, this is not, this isn't a knock against Bette Midler. We love you. We just don't want to work with you. Yeah. Um, well, so I'm green lighting the being the Ricardo style film about the making of the first Watch Club right now. I'm going to get on the phone with um, our friends at Apple TV because I feel like <laughs> they'll, they'll green light anything. You think they would um, do it? Okay. If it even has a whiff and, of Nicole Kidman, then <laughs> they're in. My second award is which musical Steven Spielberg should remake next? And the nominees are a little controversial, but we're going to remember that we had a lot of feelings about him remaking West Side Story. So we're just going to remember that we're dealing with a very talented up-and-coming director. And just the potential that he had before his dreams were dashed. And the nominees are Greece, Oklahoma, exclamation point, The Sound of Music, mm. The Wizard of Oz, and Rent. <laughs> Brian, those are all, you can't remake any of those. Get the f*** out of here. Actually, no, make Rent because the Rent movie wasn't that good. Well, that's why I picked that one as the fifth one. That's like the easy, that's the, the front runner. Yeah. But I want to say, like, I the way that I feel about The Wizard of Oz and The Sound of Music are the way that I felt about West Side Story. And I would be curious to see what Steven Spielberg has to say. You know, maybe there is some place <sighs> other than home. Sound of Music Spielberg? Are you kidding me? The, oh my god, that scene with Rolf, that shit would be so tense. The nuns wouldn't just have to disarm the cars. Like the nuns would they'd have to be like operating with AK forty seven. I'm so stressed out at the thought of either one of those movies being made. I mean, it was isn't it bad enough they did the live thing with uh Carrie Underwood as Marion Von Trapp? Like haven't we s- We don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about Carrie, no, no. <laughs> and Christine, be honest, you were stressed out when you heard that they were remaking West Side Story, I bet. I was. Right? I was. See? Give it a chance. I'm going to go with Grease, though, as my winner. And I still want Stalker Channing to play Rizzo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she did it when she was 40. Why not when she's, like, 75? I like, I like the idea of her being the Rita Moreno of the Grease remake. But mm-hmm. instead of putting her in an old lady role, she's a senior <laughs> in high school still? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Christine, do you have any Limboskers to give out? Yeah. And unlike, again, I guess I didn't, as the kids say, understand the assignment. So I just have a, I just want to give a Razzie to the worst movie I saw that uh, came out in 2021, which mm-hmm. is The Lost Daughter starring Olivia Coleman. Uh, which is based. Oh, that's a hot take. Oh God! <laughs> I know this is like when I gave Jesse Buckley Twitter is coming for you. <laughs> okay, Jesse Buckley and Olivia Coleman both acted the shit out of it. It was not a performance based issue. It was a writing issue. So it, it was based on a book by Elena Ferrante, which is the pen name of some Italian chick who writes um, very like introspective novels about women in Italy and their their relationships with each other and as mothers and as women in the world and stuff. And apparently like the book is so internal that like them trying to translate that into a movie where there's no, thank God, like voiceover narration, you don't get like the inner monologue of Olivia Coleman as she's like 
swanning around this like Greek island. Like it just doesn't make sense. And also it's called The Lost Daughter. And I feel like the trailer made it seem kind of like a thriller, like a daughter goes missing. There's no lost daughter. Nobody's daughter goes missing. Nobody's daughter dies. The Lost Daughter is like a vague. Do they ask for directions at least? No. She always knows where she's going. She has a very good sense of direction. And the whole thing is just about how Olivia Coleman's character, like, wasn't a good mother. I don't know. I, was so, I kept waiting for stuff to happen. The cast was so good. The hot Irish guy from Normal People or whatever was in it. Uh, Ed Harris is in it. I don't know. It, it was just the worst movie. And I was watching it on Netflix. Like, there was no stakes. I could have just turned it off at any time. But I was just like... My girl Olivia wouldn't sign up for a dumb movie. Like, there has to be something that happens. And she literally gets, like, stabbed with a, a hat pin and then, like, leaves and it, the movie ends. It's just, it's really bad. I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Our top five films. Uh, I'll go first. Mm-hmm. Okay. My top five. Number one, Dune. Uh, I think we've said enough about Dune. Denis Villeneuve. Incredible movie, incredible visual effects, music, everything. I think it deserves all the technical nominees that it gets uh, at tomorrow's award ceremony. Number two is The Velvet Underground, the documentary on the titular 1960s band by director Todd Haynes. Three, West Side Story, Steven Spielberg. My friend Sandra Randall and a friend of the Limbaugh said it best that uh, West Side Story is like a Rolls Royce with a flat tire. It's... An incredible movie with just one very wrong part to it. I have never met this man. I quote him all the time. Yeah. It's a great one-sentence review. Number four, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. I feel like we hold this movie at the same esteem as Dune. And number five, Tina, which I've discussed before on the show, which is the uh, Tina Turner documentary that HBO aired, uh, that I guess this is the lowest profile of all the movies that I just named. So, yeah, those are my top five. Um, one is French Dispatch, which I think I saw with you guys. It's the newest Wes Anderson movie. And I feel like not only did it get very few, if any, Oscar nominations, not a single one. Yeah, it like kind of came and went, and I know like movies were kind of thrown off their game with COVID and whatnot. But as always, it was like visually beautiful. I literally laughed and cried. The cast was insane. I just I really enjoyed that movie, and I'm a little bummed that it didn't kind of like make much of a splash. It just missed my cut, but it is a great film. Yeah. Next, this will surprise no one in on this podcast or who listens to this podcast, but Encanto. Not just for, like, the best earworm songs and all that stuff, but it, it really, it was just a great movie. And it made me cry, like, a lot at the end. Opened me up to some beautiful um, Colombian singers who sometimes post shirtless on Instagram. So that's also the gift that keeps giving. Also probably not shocking anybody in the heights which it feels like forever ago but it came out last summer and i would argue if there was like a sub oscar for best scene musical number set in a new york city public pool in the heights would walk away with it because that's the best part of the movie Ninety-six thousand, baby Ninety-six thousand. i also chose dune so i shan't uh, the, the only noteworthy thing i want to say about dune is i've not been a shallow maniac up until this point i think he's been good and like he was awesome in ladybird as like the jaded kid who doesn't Rolls his own cigarettes because he doesn't like to participate in capitalism, and uh, he was a he was a very good Laurie in. Um, so maybe Greta Gerwig brings out the best in him. I don't know, but I was just sort of like, 
I didn't think he had like leading man star power. And then he, I know there was a lot of other things happening in Dune, but I don't think Dune would have worked if the main character like wasn't doing the heavy lifting. And so on those little shoulders, well done. So I also picked Spider-Man just because, which whatever it's called, No No Way Home. I don't think it was necessarily a great movie, but it, to me, as like a theater-growing experience was, and I mean, Brian, didn't you see it on opening night? I did, yeah. Brian saw it like pre-spoiler. I kind of knew the basics of like who was going to be in it. You can spoil it. The Disney ad that they run on TV now shows all three of them. Okay. I don't want to pull a Kim Kardashian and like, not that anyone know, but you know, the Spideys and like the villains coming back and stuff. So I didn't have what Brian had, which was this like, you know, almost like Avengers Endgame level of screaming and like excitement, but it was still, there, there are key plot points of that film that I do not know because people were screaming so fucking loud to be fair i think we compared notes like andrew garfield doesn't really say much when he first shows up because they probably knew people were going to be like having cpr done on them in the in the aisles and stuff like that so and what's crazy about it is i remember you saying um that you did not know who was coming through and like the people in my theater when they saw andrew garfield he arrives with a mask on um, we're like, that's Andrew Garfield. Yeah. Cause they like recognize the <laughs> eye shape on the yeah, mask. The, the opening night fans <laughs> could recognize the mask. It was insane. And again, you've had time. It's in the ads. When Tobey Maguire comes through, he's actually not wearing yeah, a, he looks like a, a costume, like a Bible study. What did they say? He looks like a youth pastor. Yes. I think in terms of, like, was it great cinema? Absolutely not. But, like, there's... there, And I think this has been chatted about in the discourse for a long time. There's, like, different types of greatness when it comes to a, a movie. And I think especially something that brought people into the theater and has this ability to, like, make people, like, scream and clap and just, like, be so thrilled and excited. Like, that's that's a cinematic accomplishment, even if it isn't, like, high art, you know? So those are mine. So mine are a lot of rehashing of this list, which is, you know, we have a hive mind here. Mm. Um, I will say I did split my number five into two kind of like trashy, less prestige films. Cheating. Well, let's call it a tie then. Um, (laughs) Watching it in the cinema. One of them is a movie that I made Christine go back and watch with me a second time because I needed somebody else to see it so I could talk about it. And that is M. Night Shyamalan's Old cool the dumbest weirdest movie i've ever seen i remember when i saw mother i don't know 10 years ago 15 years ago last year who knows the (laughs) pandemic has fucked up my internal clock and i hated mother and i was like then all i could think about and talk about for two weeks was mother and i was like oh it's a brilliant film like if i'm still unpacking it two weeks later this is incredible cinema. And like, I would text Christine in the middle of the day and be like, do you remember that scene in old? What do you think this meant? So like, <laughs> do I think that this is grade A cinema? No, but I will say it's a lot of fun. If you're going to go into it though, and you haven't seen it, please know that Vicky creeps never says there's something wrong with this beach in the movie. It's only in the trailer. It is such a shame. 
I know, but just that was the one thing that it had going against it for me was that she never says that because there is something wrong with this speech. Also, mm, very. you know, I think what we all need to internalize is that every beach makes you older because every time you go to the beach, you leave and you're older. So, you know, that. in a way, we are all living in old. It's super deep, Brian. Thank you. The other movie that I had a great time watching in the theater, I think it may have been the first movie I saw in the theaters when they reopened, was the Emma Stone Cruella. And again, not a great film, but the costumes, I think it will win costume design. Um, Dear listener, you know uh, if it has or has not. Um, Of her like wearing a bag made out of, a, a dress made out of garbage bags and riding the back of a garbage truck. That I'm sorry, like that's not something I could have watched on Disney Plus. I needed to see that on a big screen. And as somebody who grew up watching the 1961 animated 101 Dalmatians, they really, whoever made this movie, really loved that film and made so many nods to the original, including Cruella ends up with two Dalmatians at the end of the movie, and you think she's going to kill them. And instead, mm-hmm. there's a post-credit scene, and it explains what happens to them. And like, I mean, I swear to God, the woman in front of me lost her mind. So now it gets to the rehashing. Uh, number four, I have Spider-Man No Way Home, just because that was, uh, like, I was choked up in the theater watching people react to Toby and yeah. Andrew Garfield come through, because it was so exciting to people. And, like, we've just lived in such a hellscape for so many years after the pandemic and the Trump era, that to see people just unabashedly experience joy on such a group level was so moving. Number three is The Power of the Dog. It is a movie that, upon first watching, I was like, okay, well, it was good, and it was serious, and I feel smart because I liked it. But I've rewatched it several times, and the scene where Cody Smith-McPhee makes the paper flowers and Benedict Cumberbatch gets mad at him, and the two of them have a back and forth, to me, as a gay person, is just such a commentary on internalized homophobia and the ways that we defend ourselves as queer people so that people don't know that we're gay. So I kind of hope that Power of the Dog overperforms on Sunday, just because I feel like they really did such an incredible job with that. I am curious with Power of the Dog, how you felt the second time that you watched it, because I've heard this from several people that you get a different experience re-watching it as opposed to the first time. Uh, the second time completely redefines the film for you. Really? Okay. Because you spend the entire first viewing wondering what's happening, how it's going to get there, Um you know, even down to the, this I won't spoil because Netflix has not used it in the advertising materials, but the end with the events that un- unfold, you don't, un- you don't quite understand them until that last scene in the film. Mm-hmm. And then when you rewatch the movie, what's going to happen is revealed in the voiceover at the beginning of the film. Cody Smith McPhee essentially tells you what he is setting out to do. And when I saw that and you notice all of these notes and all of these things that she is doing and telling you. And at the same time, Jane Campion does this incredible job of disarming you to the point where you're not able to even see what's in front of you. It really is a a masterwork. Cool. Um, Sorry about that. No, not at all. I'm always happy to talk about a movie with gay cowboys. Um, Please join me in my other podcast about Brokeback Mountain called Bussy Full of Beans. Um, (laughs) And my number one film of the year, uh, just like my good friend Christine, is The French Dispatch. All I can think about, I would say, I thought about it every day since I saw the film, 
is Tilda Swinton's character, J.K.L. Berenson, doing the slideshow, and it skips to the photo of her naked, and she goes, oh, dear, how did that get in there? And then she, like, she hauls for a few seconds, and then she slides out of it. I mean, like, I'm a big Tilda Swinton fan. I think it's, like, such a miracle that she has an Oscar for Michael Clayton because I feel like we've overlooked her time and time and time and time again. You forget how funny she is. Oh, my God. She is... The comedic timing is just unparalleled. So, And obviously, like... Christine said that the cast is stacked. I mean, Ugh. to the point where they you they Elizabeth Moss has four lines in the entire movie. Saoirse Ronan is reduced to like a like three seconds of screen time. Like it, it's an embarrassment of riches, obviously, because so many people want to work with Wes Anderson because they just know he's such a genius. But that Tilda Swinton performance. I mean, I know Jeffrey Wright was the one that everyone talked about after that, but the Tilda Swinton one is the one that's still on my mind. In the Jessica Chastain dramatization of the filming of First Wives Club, would Tilda Swinton play Diane Keaton? Who would she play? I like her as Diane Keaton because it's so different from her normal persona. And my one of my favorite Tilda Swinton performances ever is her as Amy Schumer's boss in Trainwreck. Because, like, when I told people, like, that's Tilda Swinton after the movie, like, I remember them being like, there's no fucking way. And I just, I feel like she's such a chameleon that, like, people would think they went back in time and got the real Diane Keaton from 1996 to play Diane Keaton in this movie. And the trailer is just Swinton and Chastain <laughs> just trading looks at each other. Like, no words are, are exchanged. It's just them looking at each other uh what is the name of that movie that she is in it's not the witch but it's the one about the witches at the dance studio uh, yes the suspiria Luca. yes uh when she when she was in suspiria in two roles and refused to acknowledge that she was the second role and was like that's not me that's not me and she talked about the person like i love the idea of her being like that's not me in the first wives club movie that's diane keaton like <laughs> <laughs> Truly psychotic behavior, but in the best way. (laughs) Right, yeah. So I'm going to say it just like the actual Oscars. We've run long, but I want to congratulate all of our winners. I want to thank everybody for their contribution in film. Our first annual Limboskers. And now for our listeners' pleasure, live from a tennis court in Compton, is Beyonce singing a song that she will probably not win an Oscar for. (laughs) Good night, everyone. Good night. (laughs) Up next, Christine with a profile on Rachel Carson. Okay, so we're going to change gears quite significantly. First of all, we're going to profile someone who has nothing to do with the film industry, but also I'm going to be very earnest because Rachel Carson is awesome. And a lot of you I know, including at least one of my co-hosts, don't know who she is. So I look forward to fixing that. And I have I have three pages of notes. So I'm going <laughs> to try to... Uh, Just cook? Yeah. So this is a Jimmy Carter recipient. Her name is Rachel Carson. This was a posthumous honor. She was awarded in 1980 by Jimmy Carter, and she passed away in 1964, which I'll get to. So she was a passionate and incredibly influential environmentalist and conservationist. So it's not 
particularly surprising that she was a Jimmy Carter pick. I mean, I'm a, I don't really understand why she didn't get one sooner, but I actually feel good. Like I'm like I'm glad Jimmy Carter was the one that gave it to her. But that is surprising because we did talk. Um, I think during your last pick about how horny Lady Bird Johnson was for the environment. You'd think she would have been like, "Oh no, we got to get this woman one." I know, and then um, LBJ was like, a woman, get the hell out of here. And she would have still been alive, too, right? It says that she died in 1964. Sorry yeah. for spoilers. <laughs> it, would have been, it would have been touch and go, you know, with yeah. that first So class. early, yeah, which, um, again, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about her and um, some of the timeline of her accomplishments. So, yeah, we've talked before about how the winners either do or should reflect American values or at least an American value that, like, the president who gives the award kind of sees that person as reflecting. I mean, I believe this is someone who profoundly changed this country and possibly the world in ways that are probably irreversible, like irreversibly positive. So I I kind of can't overstate. I told the guys I got, like, a little emotional emotional doing my research on her because she's just so incredible. So let's get started. She was born on May 27, 1907 in Springdale, Pennsylvania, which is apparently not far from Pittsburgh. So roughly that area. In college, she started out studying English, but switched to biology, which is worth mentioning because her ability to write compellingly about complex scientific ideas ends up being how she makes her mark. And in graduate school, she focused on zoology and genetics. Her um, graduate studies kept being interrupted by, say, the Great Depression. She's not somebody who came from money. She's not somebody who is, like, well-connected. And so some of her scientific studies were, like, interrupted by having to go work to, like, support her family. So her first job, like, real job was she worked for the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries, writing radio copy for a series of weekly educational broadcasts that were called romance under the waters and that was she did that for like a year so it was like 52 scripts i guess for for this radio show that was um trying to get people to care about what goes on in the ocean so she wrote a lot she wrote for in addition to that being her core job she wrote things that were published in the baltimore sun and the atlantic and ended up sort of preparing a a book proposal based on her writing for the romance under the waters show And actually, Oxford University Press ended up biting. And it was, like, kind of a hit. Like, I know it's weird to think in the 1950s that this lady writing about the ocean was going to be popular, but it was. So the first book ended up being called The Sea Around Us, and it was the first of three books she wrote about the ocean. So for The Sea Around Us, chapters appeared in Science Digest and the Yale Review, Nine chapters were serialized in The New Yorker beginning in 1951. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 86 weeks, was abridged by Reader's Digest, and won the 1952 National Book Award for nonfiction. And if you're like, wow, that's a lot of accomplishments for a, I guess, that around that time she was in her late 30s, early 40s, just wait, because she was just getting warmed up. The book she's really known for is called Silent Spring. And this book came after... After the three books she wrote about the ocean, you know, but at that point, I think she had established herself enough that she was like, she had become interested in more broader ecological issues than just oceanography. So she was increasingly concerned, along with a lot of other people. She wasn't certainly alone in this, 
about the use of pesticides. You know, like the mid 20th century was a time period where it was like we we made a scientific discovery and we're just like, yep, this is the thing. And we're just going to use it all the time for everything like asbestos and like leaded gasoline and all these things that were just like full steam ahead, boys. Oh, we have extra? Just dump it into the ocean. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a poison that's still affecting our lives, our dependency on plastic. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure she would have a lot to say about single-use plastic if she hadn't died before uh, it kind of became a thing. She got out when the getting was good. She did. 1964, (laughs) she was like, I'm out. Mayo Um, still came in glass jars. God, Rachel, (laughs) I I envy you. (laughs) So DDT, um, which probably... Brian, do you remember people still talking about DDT when you were a kid or no? Uh, Joni Mitchell talks about DDT in Big Yellow Taxi. Doesn't she? (laughs) Give me the spots on the apples. Give me the birds and the bees. Something about DDT. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they would just spray DDT all over the place. It was originally used for agriculture. You know, it's a pesticide. So they were like, isn't this awesome? It kills all the bugs. Just dump it in and we won't worry about it. And it was a slow process, but the scientific community was like, hey, so maybe it's not great because it's killing like birds and then say the bugs get, I don't know, ingest or exposed to DDT, don't die. And then they're eaten by like animals. And then we eat those animals. Like there, you know, maybe there's a whole ecosystem here that we're fucking up. And this was, so, you know, there's like, we talk about big oil. There was also big chemical or like big pesticide. And it was just one of those things where it was both the government and the public sort of uncritically listened to propaganda, basically, that these chemical companies were, you know, they were just like, no, 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 this is making everything better and safer. And don't you hate bugs? And like, So she spent many years researching and preparing to write this book, Silent Spring, because it was just inspired by her growing concerns over the short and long-term effects of unbridled (laughs) pesticide usage. And the title of the book, Silent Spring, has that sort of double meaning. She put a lot of thought into that. So it both means like birds are dying right now. So, you know, things are almost literally silent because you don't hear birds singing. But it was also sort of a foreboding, the future of the planet. Like, every spring will be silent if we just keep, like, destroying the ecosystem with these pesticides. So it was published during the Kennedy presidency. So it was published in September 1962. Um, And uh, President Kennedy actually ordered an investigation by his own science advisory committee to see if her claims held up. Unsurprisingly, they did. So Silent Spring was a massive hit, both in terms of its popularity with the public. Again, I alluded to her having this background in studying English and having all this writing experience. She was able to write something that a non-scientist could read and get them very concerned (laughs) about what was happening. So it's considered to be a, a sort of a rallying point for the growing environmental movement in the 1960s, which was, of course, like growing backlash to that. 1940s 1950s like let's just use all the chemicals for everything it'll be awesome we've solved nature and like we've conquered it and also of course it can't be ignored that she was a woman there was sort of eco-feminism um i don't know if that's a movement that's still going i'm sure it is but it's like almost the idea that it was a movement like women who care about the environment like that's how new this being like a sort of a social and political movement really was. But her being a woman was also used to discredit her. 
she was referred to as a spinster because she was unmarried, which I'm going to touch a little bit more on her personal life after this. She was also called a communist because she was seen as anti-capitalist, right? Because these chemical companies were, they were doing the best for the American economy and helping our farms grow their crops without pesticides, you know, without um, infestations. And so some of the things that were used mostly backed by these chemical companies were, there's a lot of gendered rhetoric um, and anti-capitalist stuff that was lobbed against her to try to discredit her. And even, you know, just to put it into context, the idea of environmentalism did not exist yeah. at that time as well. And these chemical companies were trying very hard to keep it that way and to yes. frame it as a uh, patriotic thing to support chemical use and, and the overuse of these companies. Well, yeah, guys, and don't forget, again, DDT is like the big one. I'm sure there were others, or I know that there were others, but a lot of these, you know, in some ways, scientific breakthroughs. I mean, pesticides, like we still use pesticides today. It's just changed a lot from this like shock and awe campaign of just gassing the entire country. A lot of this stuff came from research during World War II. And actually, science in general in the post-war years was very oriented towards Things like this, like chemistry, things that were going to help American, um, the American economy, help us produce things. You know, it's like, oh, we can make, like scientists can help us make bombs. And so this sort of counter movement of like, no, And that went great. You know, nothing bad happened. The <laughs> impact of this book is like really hard to overstate. Her legacy is incredibly profound, not just through the banning of DDT, which didn't happen immediately, but... You know, within 10 years, it was like it was out, except for, I think, in very rare circumstances. So as we mentioned, the book was published in 1962. In 1967 was the formation of the Environmental Defense Fund. And that was sort of the first step in the sort of campaign against DDT and pesticides like it being used in a way that's harmful to human beings. Don't forget, like DDT is a carcinogen. And that was another thing that people weren't talking about. And that went into her research as well for the book as she was reading these. There were, they weren't getting like national news, but there were these studies like, yeah, places where there's just unchecked application of pesticides, including DDT. I mean, Aaron Brockovich did the same thing 30 years later, you know, except Rachel Carson, you know, was a lady and she, she wasn't like a sassy divorcee with a wonder bra. So, but ironically, she did solve environmental problems with, Albert Finney, which is just like uh, Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich. Oh, yes, yes, yes. In an excellent toupee. They're called boobs, Ed. <laughs> a great film. A great film. So the Environmental Defense Fund literally brought lawsuits against the government to, to basically say it was an American citizen's right to have a clean environment. By 1972, the Environmental Defense Fund and other groups had secured a phase-out of DDT in the United States. So if you're thinking about the environment, you know, Nixon era, 1970, what did, despite all of the bad things we have to say about him, what did President Nixon create? The EPA. The EPA. Oh, so, I was going to say a job opening. But <laughs> yeah, that too, that too, that too, that too. Again, I was like, think of something positive, he, you know, even a, he, what's it, even a broken clock is right twice a day. So the Environmental Protection Agency so I'm I'm listing all these things because it's widely accepted that this was a her book um Silent Spring published in 1962 was sort of the flashpoint 
Um, you can always say like, okay, this was an idea whose time had come and this stuff probably would have ended up happening. Like if it hadn't been Rachel Carson, it would have been someone else. But like it was, it was Rachel Carson. She wrote this incredible book that, that brought this like urgency of this issue, not just to into the, the national conversation. Exactly. And so the fact that the public could read this and understand it and was scared about it, like that had, I know it doesn't always feel this way. <laughs> But like public sentiment does influence politics and does influence the decisions of the government because they feel the it pressure. becomes a public issue. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So this wasn't literally the only reason Nixon created the EPA. So this was something I hadn't realized. So Rachel Carson pointed this out. There was a conflict of interest the, before the EPA existed. And so in her time, she was like just pointing out that the USDA had an inherent conflict of interest because the USA was both responsible for regulating pesticides and promoting the concerns of the agriculture industry. So the agriculture industry is probably lobbying heavily to be like, no, 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 we're pro-pesticide because then yeah. our crops are easier to take care of. But if the USDA is also regulating pesticides, it's just like, yeah. It was it wasn't a good look. I'm going to completely dumb down this conversation, but if we remember in the cherished '80s film Ghostbusters, who the villain is, it's the EPA. EPA, because right. there's still that that dichotomy between you know uh, the uh, good, hardworking American trying to earn a paycheck and protecting the environment. Yeah, and it's like I was saying, it was the environmental stuff was seen as like anti-capitalist, and I think to a certain mm -hmm. degree that's still. Happens today. I mean, don't mm -hmm. forget, uh, the former guy hasn't been gone that long, but remember what he was doing to the EPA. They, they couldn't use the word climate warming. change. They couldn't yeah. say global warming and, and all this stuff because it's like, no, 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 we want industry to be able to hmm. go unchecked. Also, I have a group chat that can back me up on this. I woke up, I would say, late December, early January of 2020, and I texted a bunch of friends and was like, listen, we have to stop making fun of Joe Biden on the Internet. And they were like, why? And I was like, because it's going to embarrass us when we are campaigning for him in uh, the fall. And they were like, there's no way he's fallen off. And I was like, nope, he's going to overperform on Super Tuesday. And he's the only person who can realistically win Wisconsin and Pennsylvania because they rely so heavily on fracking. And he's the only person who has not come out against it. I was like, if we nominate anyone else, we lose the election. And as the piece, I literally was laughed out of the room. And as the pieces fell into place up until him overperforming on Super Tuesday when we went down to Georgia, my friend was like, holy shit, how the fuck did you know this? And I was like, there was no way that these people in Pennsylvania were going to give up fracking. They th like, it's the way what you just said, where people think that regulation is going to kill their job. And he was the only person who was not willing to be like, that's that's a step too far. We're going to stop that. He, mm -hmm. he stayed quiet on that, um, you know, fucking stage where it was like, Every fucking Democrat who, like, you know, had more than $100,000 in cash mm -hmm. seemed to be on that stage that night. And it's true, like, to this day. Like, if you tell somebody, like, oh, well, we, we should regulate the automobile industry, it's like, but you'll kill jobs. And it's like, no, we'll teach people how to make cars that run on, you know, yeah, solar or sun. Like, I promise there's still a way to make money and not kill the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Allegedly. <laughs> TBD. <laughs> So, yeah, just to conclude, I mean, so the EPA in it, the early days of its existence, uh, the 1972 Federal Insecticide, Fungicide and Rodenticide Act directly related to uh, Rachel Carson's work, obviously within Silent Spring, but she was writing and speaking 
as much as she could, which we're going to we're going to pivot into like some sad stuff. So the entire editing, like she had she had been writing Silent Spring for years, you know, preparing research, talking to scientists, yada, yada. By the time she and her editor were down to like editing and preparing the book, she was battling metastatic breast cancer. And they actually, as they were preparing to publish, because they knew they had already seen the um, the reaction from certain groups to some of these ideas, and of course, like her being a woman and things like that. So they, she and her publisher, like prepared this whole thing. Like the, you know, how I mentioned the New Yorker had serialized her first book on the ocean. They did the mm-hmm. same thing with Silent Spring. Like they were doing all these things to kind of get it out there and try to get public sentiment behind it because they knew. It's like really sad. They knew she basically wasn't going to be able to go able to out defend on defend herself and defend yeah. herself. I mean, like I said, she she'd already had some success as a as a writer and an ecologist prior to Silent Spring. But Silent Spring was just this like literally changed the world. And she passed away only like a year and a half after it was published. After I don't know if you guys know how bad like breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer can be, but it was just, it was pretty brutal. Um, so unfortunately a lot of her honors of which there are many were posthumous because her greatest work, the thing she did that had the biggest impact happened so soon before she passed away. So I just wanted to talk about Rachel Carson, the person a little bit, because uh, I mean, I kind of touched on it by saying, you know, here she was a woman, her, her books on the ocean were published throughout the 1950s. Early 1960s, she publishes this strangely controversial book that was pissing off a lot of um, capitalists and um, powerful industries in the country. And, you know, she was doing all this as a woman, let alone an unmarried woman. So something I just wanted to note about her personal life. So as mentioned, she was not married and her sexuality has actually been questioned by it was questioned by contemporaries at the time but also like biographers and scholars she had an extremely close personal friend named Dorothy Freeman with whom she had an incredibly close friendship that was documented with letters that they um over their friendship in addition to spending a lot of time together in person they sent each other over 900 letters and they also destroyed many of their letters and so it's um you can find it on the internet. We're not going to go into it, but some of the um, expressions of love that are in the letters are not only like beautifully written, but I don't know. I like I've got some pretty close female friendships, and I don't know that I would have um, said some of the like incredibly gorgeous things that she and Dorothy were saying to each other. Also, I appreciate you for as a heterosexual person not doing this, but. When I read about her, when I did the list of LGBTQ medal recipients, I included her. Um, so long-term, long-time listeners know uh, what's up. And uh, she was as gay as the day is long. Yeah. And I mean, for the She thing- was as gay as that spring was silent, you know? <laughs> <laughs> she does sound like she's ahead of her time, both in her work and her life. Yeah, and it's, I mean... being gay is always avant-garde. It's cutting edge. (laughs) Cutting edge. (laughs) Well, and it's, I mean, to me, the and the only reason I, not only reason, but one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up is, like, her, all of this writing she did about the environment, the articles she wrote, the books she wrote, it came from a genuine passion for environmentalism and a genuine concern for the future of the planet long before Al Gore who we'll get to made uh, an inconvenient truth. She was, she was kind of like, you know, she didn't have a PowerPoint and one of those 
what are those called? Like cherry pickers that he had when he was like illustrating how bad global warming was getting. She was a really passionate person. And so to me, the idea that there was this huge part of her life that had to be kept secret and that, um, you know, her not even choosing to like have a (laughs) sham marriage, you know, like just for appearances to get married or to, um, you know, we're talking about the 1950s. I, I don't know. It just, it really makes you realize how strong of a person she was, that she was like, I know that I'm right about this you know, the DDT and the pesticide shit. And I know they're going to call me a spinster and a communist and blah, blah, blah. And I'm fucking dying of cancer, but like, I'm going to finish this book. And I'm not going to give an inch. I'm not going to half-ass it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was why I, listeners, I told the guys that when I was doing this research, I like almost cried. And it, it was because I was just so, I was so really like moved by what everything that I learned about her. So... I know that we usually do these like supplemental showdowns in a funny way, but this one's like kind of earnest. There was a frontline PBS uh, story sort of revisiting Silent Spring because if you can think back to the year 1992, we had the aforementioned Al Gore in the White House as vice president. And so the only time he'd ever go to the White House. I know. When I said in the White House, I'm like, well, you know, in the vice president wing. We remember the 2000 election, baby. Thanks, Florida. <laughs> Thanks, Jeb. Please clap. So, yeah, so so PBS Frontline kind of just, like, revisited Silent Spring in the context of having an environmentalist as a vice president. And so they probably, honestly, if you just read this article, it probably does a better job of summarizing her influence than, than I did. But I thought, especially because Clay mentioned there's a sort of the Frontline voice I would love to see you guys do like a great kind of, you know, pick a, a paragraph that seems seems impressive here and, and give it your best go. All right, cool. Okay. On the walls of the U.S. Vice President's office, you might expect to see framed photos of political giants past and present. Amidst his collection, however, Al Gore cherishes a picture of a biologist from Western Pennsylvania, Rachel Carson, author of Silent Spring. Why doesn't an assuming scientist lay claim to this space? For me personally, says Gore in his introduction to the 1992 edition of her book, Silent Spring had a profound impact. Indeed. Rachel Carson was one of the reasons that I became so conscious of the environment and so involved with environmental issues. Carson has had as much or more effect on me than any, and perhaps than all of them, put together. Thank you, Clay. Brian, whenever you're ready. Like, the Al Gore impression is too much. Like, I feel like I should just throw my hat in now. But... Thank you! (laughs) This has been the Limboskers. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Despite the 1972 DDT ban, the effects of the chemical continue to be evident in wildlife populations, according to some biologists. John Elliott, a researcher with the Canadian Wildlife Service in British Columbia, works with robins in the Ongian fruit-growing region of the British Columbia. These orchids have been sprayed with pesticides for 40 years, Elliot, who studies the long-term effects of DDT contamination on the birds, 
has found that the DDT levels in their eggs are remarkably higher than levels reported 20 to 25 years ago, which suggests that although DDT is not in use, the residue continues to affect these birds. He believes that many of the questions Rachel Carson raised required more rigorous follow-up, such as, what are the real effects of DDT on the robins? Does it cause acute poisoning of adult birds, or does it have effects on their long-term reproductive of their, of their offspring? Thank you both so much. Obviously, Clay won, but... Um... You're goddamn right I did. You're on back, baby! I am back! <laughs> I really was expecting him to go, Tipper, there it goes again! <laughs> <laughs> I'm not part of the showdown, but just the concluding paragraph of this PBS thing. Rachel Carson anticipated these questions about the threats posed to the reproduction by chemicals in the environment. And this is a quote from Rachel Carson. We are subjecting whole populations to exposure to chemicals, which animal experiments have proved to be extremely poisonous, and in many cases, cumulative in their effects. These exposures now begin at or before birth, and unless we change our methods, we'll continue through the lifetime of those now living. And can I just say she was right? Yep. Pretty ominous. I know. So I just want to conclude with a couple, in addition to like her, the legacy of people who are still alive, who were inspired by her, the creation of the Environmental Defense Fund, the EPA, all these things that were sort of inspired by her, her work and the popularization of environmental issues. So other uh, just sort of honors or things that she's gotten besides the Presidential Medal of Freedom, um, she's been on a postage postage stamp in the U.S., which, you know, you have to be pretty awesome to to get one of those. Um, She's in the Women's Hall of Fame, which I didn't know there was a Women's Hall of Fame, and now I do. UC Santa Cruz named a college after her. She was the first woman to have a college named after her. In Munich, there is a... So she had a global impact. Other countries... I don't have all the details in front of me, but the the things that were happening in the United States with um, backlash to these pesticides, et cetera, spread throughout the globe. In Munich, there is a Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society. Her birthplace and childhood home is on the National Register of Historic Places. She has several elementary and middle schools named after her. And there are two American research vessels that have borne her name. Furthermore, there is a Rachel Carson Prize founded in Norway in 1991, which is awarded to women who've made a contribution in the field of environmental protection. And lastly, everyone knows David Attenborough, right? He's the British naturalist Mm -hmm. who has like the best BBC voice ever. He stated that Silent Spring was probably the book that changed the scientific world the most after The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. So Rachel Carson deserves to be more of a household name than she is. I'm very glad that Jimmy Carter, who has a soft spot for environmental issues, is the one who honored her with it. I'm just sad that, as I mentioned, she kind of didn't get to survive to see um, the massive impact that her work had on, certainly in the U.S. and globally as well, environmental issues. So here's to you, Rachel Carson. Also, to quote a popular meme format that's out there right now, Hmm. Um, I'm so sad that Rachel Carson died before climate change. She would have loved it. Like, it just would have given her so much to do. Um. (laughs) Oh, she would have been so busy. Like, if she lived to, like, 98, like a lot of these other medal recipients we've talked about. Instead, she died when she was, like, 56. She could have, yeah, she could have kicked some more ass for sure. 
Mm-hmm. Um, also, Clay, before you go, I want to point out that this is the second time we've gone through all of the presidents, and both of our Jimmy Carter picks have been gay people, which I'm just obsessed with. There's one more lesbian hiding in Jimmy Carter's ranks, and I'm hoping that whoever gets him next time pulls that person out. Okay. I hope so, too. Um, I, I want Jimmy Carter to have the gayest run on this. Um, I love that for him. <laughs> Wherever he and Rosalind are right now, I know that they're, they have big gay energy. Christine mentioned this in the last episode, but I actually feel anger with myself for having no idea who she was until today's show. This yeah, was really great. She's awesome. And I feel like I... Is there anyone other than Al Gore that you, you would compare her to today, guys? Oh, I would compare her to Elizabeth Warren. Um, the idea mm. that she's willing to take such like an anti-capitalist stance uh, for regulation and protections for consumers and the environment and our uh, country and like more widely our, our planet. Uh, to me, it's it's my favorite senator from Massachusetts. That's a great pick. Mine isn't as good as that, and it's actually a person that made his impact before, but I'm just thinking of Alan Turing, just uh, a genius-level mind who had, like, bullshit of of people calling him out for something that had nothing to do with his expertise and yeah. use that to discredit his work. Yeah. Well, Rachel Carson, we salute you. She honestly should have gotten it with distinction now that we're... You know, Donald Rumsfeld got it with distinction, and Rachel Carson didn't. You know, obviously... Carter would go on to lose re-election. If he hadn't picked her and Clinton got to pick her, I think she would have gotten with distinction because I think Al Gore would have been in that ear being like, you, you gotta you gotta put the uh, the WD next to her. Every day we would just come into the Oval Office with like that framed photo. Be like, do it, pick her. <laughs> pick her. I don't know why I gave him that voice. Do it, pick her. I don't know. Let's leave the Al Gore impression to Clay, okay? Okay. Thank you, thank you. Leave it to a professional, Okay. We'll be back in a few minutes with our medals of the week. Welcome back. It's time for our medals of the week. Most presidents will award a medal on a lifetime of distinction and accomplishment, but sometimes we as presidents will give away a medal for just one good week. I'm going to go first. Um, Mine is truly a medal where... I am honoring this person for their pettiness, their behavior, which was incredibly small, but incredibly effective, and ended up getting them, I think, everything that they wanted. On Sunday, March 19th, Rachel Zegler posted a photo of her in her BAFTA's award gown, which was a navy blue dress. She posted an Instagram carousel of her sitting in the audience at the BAFTAs with Mike Feist, who I believe was also nominated. Uh, Zegler, not nominated for an Oscar, but was nominated for a BAFTA. And she's kind of posted all of her glamorous looks for all of the award shows she's attended throughout this season. Um, And a commenter by the name CubsFan326 said, can't wait to see what you wear to the Oscars. And I have Mm. to say... Rachel Zegler did not disappoint. She wrote back 10 hours later, IDK, y'all, I have tried it all, but it doesn't seem to be happening. Sad emoticon face with a tear. I will root for, for West Side Story from my couch and be proud of the work we so tirelessly did three years ago. 
I hope some last minute miracle occurs and I can celebrate our film in person. But hey, I guess that's how it goes sometimes. I guess. Thanks for all the shock and outrage. I'm disappointed too, but that's okay. So proud of our movie. She also, uh, there's multiple comments that she made. She said that she would be wearing sweatpants. She said that she would be wearing her boyfriend's flannel. Rachel Zegler is currently on the set of the uh, next film that she's going to make, which is a live-action remake of Disney's Snow White, and it is filming in London. And apparently um, COVID restrictions would make it near impossible for them to continue to film the movie if she were to get sick. And famously, everybody who went to the Baptist got COVID. So that's why Disney will not allow her to go. But because she posted this, the Oscars now feel the need to make sure that Rachel gets to attend the Oscars. And not only have they, you know, sent her a ticket, they have bumped somebody who we do not know who it is so that Rachel can present an award with Jacob Alordi from Euphoria at the uh, televised ceremony on Sunday. I know who it is. It's probably Shaw Halu, the giant sandworm <laughs> from Dune. Sorry, Shaw. Devastating. I would love that because it would be two massive assholes. Um, <laughs> the one from Dune looks like an asshole. Jacob Bellorty plays an asshole on Euphoria. It would have been perfect synergy. Mm-hmm. But now instead, apparently, it'll be Rachel Zegler. I, I have to say, like, as somebody who is obsessed with the Oscars, if I was in a film that had Oscar buzz or recognition, I would do everything in my power to make sure that I was invited. I support her. And it turns out that apparently, and this I did not know, uh, because I was at first I was like very like, does she deserve to go? But Disney is apparently very mad at her. Um, and they had already signed this contract for her to make the Snow White movie because she was the only person in the West Side Story cast who made comments that called into question the behavior of one Ansel Elgort. And it was never direct. It was never full-throated. It definitely had to be kind of sad in whispers and, you know, she liked tweets and, you know, just like little things that she would say that were vague enough that they could be about anybody but were clearly directed at her co-star who has been um, called a sexual predator. And Disney was very upset because they had been very clear that no one was to say anything. Um, Just no comment, no comment, no comment. So I... Between that and the idea that, like, she went from not being invited to the Oscars or not being allowed to go to the Oscars to now presenting at the Oscars. And she gives a great performance as Maria in West Side Story. That final scene uh, with her outside of the drugstore is unreal. Rachel Zegler, congratulations. Enjoy the Oscars. Have the best time. I probably won't be seeing Snow White, but I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Why won't you see Snow White, Brian? Because it has Gal Gadot in it. And I'm not going to that movie unless I have enough champagne to fill the Nile. (laughs) She's the new Taylor Swift, but like in reverse. Bravo. Bravo. Really, really went for it there. That's good. All right. Well, mine, I'm a simple girl. Mine's a simple pick. I don't actually watch Kelly Clarkson's talk show. Brian just gay gasped, if anyone heard it. Uh, Brian's literally been to an of filming of it and was briefly on the, on the television, which was very exciting. So this week, I guess what's Anne Hathaway promoting. So the movie Uh, with Jared Leto, the, we work one, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. The show we crashed. 
Yeah. Which I'm actually looking forward to seeing. It's going to be a sister piece to the uh, the dropout. Yeah, which I'm loving, by the way. Like, oh, I love this bust of this renaissance of Silicon Valley scam artists getting their uh, prestige television moment. <laughs> I love it, too. Uh, you know, Anne Hathaway emerged from her um, Brooklyn cocoon to promote this show, and she went on Kelly Clarkson, and we all know she can sing, and she's like a theater dork, and everybody hated her, and like... 2012 for trying too hard or whatever. We've moved past that as a society, which is good. It was the Obama years. It was like a simple time. Like, we didn't have a lot to be upset about. So we were like, Anne Hathaway shows that she wants an Oscar. So we hate her. So she cut, she did a uh, karaoke. It was like karaoke, but it was like a contest to see who inter- would recognize the introduction of the song fastest. And then, like, sing the song. and It's like their way of ripping off the Wikipedia showdown. Yeah, I know. Which our lawyers are talking to their lawyers. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Kelly Clarkson, famous Limbaugh listener. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I say lawyers, I mean my cats wearing bow ties um, and mashing the keyboard with their paws. I mean, they'd frighten me. Yeah. So... Anne Hathaway was up three to zero. Like, she was just kicking Kelly's ass. And then Kelly's like, I don't know these songs. Like, play something I would know. So the house band does, like, the da-da-da-da for Since You've Been Gone. Anne Hathaway jumps up and sings it and, like, beats Kelly Clarkson to her own biggest song. And to her credit, Kelly Clarkson's reaction was just to do a face plant and flop on the ground of her own (laughs) stage because she basically had been murdered on live television. And it's fantastic. You just, you can't outdo like a theater kid. And I, Kelly Clarkson is one of the many patron saints of this podcast. I love her so much. And Since You've Been Gone is like one of the best pop songs ever. Um, and she's a total delight. But like you can't beat, you can't like out theater kid a theater kid. And it was just, it was delightful. Everybody Google it. My limbo goes to Anne Hathaway for just being who she is. Not your limbo, your medal of the week. Oh my we're god, not, my medal of the week. No, 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 no. No, <laughs> oh no, 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 no. Medal of the week. This is not a limbo. This is with distinction. It's funny. Um, I don't, uh, it wasn't a popular film when it came out, but I remember she was in a movie called Ella Enchanted, which is like a retelling of Cinderella. And she sings yes. in that. And she ever does. since then, like, I have internalized Anne Hathaway can sing. And I think even though she won the Oscar for Les Mis, people still are like, oh, yeah, but she was, like, crying and the vocals weren't that great. So to me, like, that's been the most fun part of this video is, like, watching people be like, Anne Hathaway can sing. And it's like, you know, you weren't paying enough attention. Yeah, and <laughs> since you've been gone as someone who's, like, screams, sung it while drunk more than a few times, like, it's not easy to get those. Because Kelly Clarkson is truly, she has an incredible voice. And Anne Hathaway crushes it. Honestly, I'm so thankful that I did my civic duty every week in 2002 and voted Kelly Clarkson to be our American Idol with, you know, hundreds of thousands of other homosexuals. Um, It is truly the... She is our only trusted uh, elected official at this point. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. We love you. Well, going from one trusted elected official from Texas <laughs> to Talk another segue. untrusted oh. public official from Texas. Our 16th episode, guys. That's right. I'm getting <laughs> the segues down, baby. I uh, got the taste of negativity last week with my Limbaugh, and you know what? I'm sticking with it. My medal of the week is a Limbaugh, and it goes to, from my home state of Texas, Senator Ted Cruz, 
who in the confirmation hearings for uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson this week decided to pull out Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech and said that if he was alive today, he would be against teaching critical race theory. Oh, no. (laughs) Honey, no. Yes. And so he uh, thought that he would be credible in saying that to really draw this out, that Martin Luther King Jr. would be against teaching children that African-Americans are sometimes viewed differently than white people. While he was saying this, his uh, daughters were going to school, a school that actually also teaches critical race theory, and the daughters, the same daughters that he threw under the bus whenever he decided to go to Cancun during the power outage crisis in Texas last year. Oh, that's those daughters. Yes, 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 Those daughters, you know, the ones that he's thrown under the bus once, uh, did it again by uh, saying that critical race theory... uh, deems Katanji Brown-Jackson ineligible to make it to the Supreme Court as the first African-American woman. So Ted Cruz, really fantastic political gymnastics you've made there that nobody believed, but uh, I don't think that we should be surprised that he has no shame uh, in terms of what he says. So Ted Cruz is my Limbaugh for the Medal of the Week. This is a lot less profound than the thing that you're giving him the Limbaugh for, but he also missed a flight and had a huge tantrum at the airport and pulled the don't you know who I am card. And I feel like Ted Cruz is someone where if people know who they who he is, that like that's probably going to hurt him, not help him. Mm-hmm. So just all around piece of garbage. Yep. yep. So when, when they teach Texas history, let's emphasize the Kelly Clarksons of the Lone Star State and not the Ted Cruz's. If he could only handle this Supreme Court nomination hearing with the grace that Kelly handled getting outsung in her own song by Anne Hathaway, we wouldn't be in this mess. I agree. And I think that Texas history books will have room to teach about how awful Ted Cruz is because they apparently are legally not allowed to talk about critical race theory. So, you know, they need something to, uh, to fill the time with. <laughs> I would I would say that the Katanji Brown Jackson um, hearings Hearing? are Ted Cruz's uh, from Justin to Kelly. It's Just him in his like ultimate flop era. Mm-hmm. It really is. I'm sure under that suit jacket, he's wearing like a midriff bearing halter top and and cut off shorts too. Well, that's one image. Um, <laughs> great picks. I will say this has been. Just like the actual Oscars, the Limb Oscars have run very, very long. Um, <laughs> Thank you for staying with us. We would be amiss if we did not mention that Madeleine Albright passed away this week, and we do know that she is a medal recipient, um, and we will do her justice in a future episode uh, where we talk about her and her accomplishments. But when our little uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom Google alert went off this week, uh, it was not for a good reason. It was very, very sad. And she is a true trailblazer and um, has had quite, quite an impact uh, both on our country and on our lives. But it would be wrong for us not to at least acknowledge that uh, she has passed away, uh, especially since we have kind of made it our duty to talk about iconic history-making women um, mm who have earned the medal this month. Um, and she is truly, uh, one of them, if not a standout in that crowd. 
the first female secretary of state in the United States. Your dog agrees. <laughs> he, he's a feminist. He, he, he's, he's a big fan of the Clinton era, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm, okay. mm-hmm. He came running down the stairs when, when Christine said Al Gore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but great episode, guys. Um, I'm so jealous of you, dear listener. You already know what I, what's going to happen at the Oscars, and I don't mm-hmm. as I'm recording this. But I will find out with my co-host. Yes. All right. presidential metaphor 